maaie trams un hoka plēts un kīdā lūsu blāk. Tad trams uz kantrē rungam rungam lēsēnīn un dāk. Ap teltīja rūpa un tēl un ceks ir aizīm. Pār ap un tēdas nūvināk un savs vai grētnā grīm. Ap sīnā haiba nēvas ar caur un tēdam mūn. Ap bēn vai grīp un kalendār un bēn vai bāni dēn. An beiden Nepfis und die Teilen Plässe so viel kennen. Fahr ab und dir das Hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, we are talking about uh, The King of the Vagabonds by Neil Stevenson, which is book two of the Baroque cycle. And uh, we picking up uh, in the middle part of the story after having uh, Eliza and Jack have arrived in Leipzig. Um, and it's at this point that the story goes from being one about vagabonds and slaves escaping the Turks to being a story about about commerce. Um, and we'll see in the third part, it really becomes a story about, about politics, ultimately, because it all comes down to politics, ultimately. It's politics that are driving the currency and driving commerce, and commerce is driving politics one way or another. So we're picking up, it's late April, 1684 in Saxony. Um, Eliza has talked herself into looking into buying uh, shares in a silver mine being sold by Leibniz. Leibniz, uh, it seems that in Germany, the business of, of making silver is just not profitable anymore because of the, the flooding of the European market with Spanish silver. So European silver miners are having a tough time making money. Can't make money making money anymore, as one character says. But Leibniz has sort of figured out a way to increase, I guess, efficiency through technology. And so he's selling uh, shares in this mine. He's not really because it's what he's interested in doing. We obviously know he has philosophical and mathematical interests at this point in the story. But he's doing it at behest of his patrons, right? The, the, uh, the kings of Hanover. And through all this, they go from Leipzig to Saxony. Um, and through all this, Jack is becoming increasingly alienated from Eliza. So we see them. He's on Turk on, and, and Eliza and the doctor Leibniz are in the carriage together talking, doing their thing. And Jack just feels increasingly left out of this. And every time he says anything, it's like Eliza basically makes a comment like, you're outside of your school. Your, your level. You don't know what you're talking about. Get out of here. It's pretty sad, actually, after all they've been together. Uh, Jack's still thinking, sell these plumes, ostrich plumes, sell this tow horse, get some money. I can give some to my kids. And, you know, that's burning the hand is worth two in the bush, right? Eliza says, no, you're wrong. All the value is in the bush. Um, and I think she's really a great just symbol of this kind of modern capitalist ethic that it's 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 really who you know money doesn't really matter what has value is what you do with the money obviously and money has power but money itself is this liquid thing it's 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 not real right and if you keep thinking it's really going to treat every dollar like and is it's a real it's it's something that it's it's precious and it's not it's only precious because other people accept it um to be in exchange for goods she gets this more than than Jack does, uh, unfortunately, for their relationship. 
Now, first we get the only real close window in natural philosophy that we get in this whole book uh, is Leibniz is struggling over whether to send out for publication uh, his article on the calculus. And Eliza's like, you know, trying to talk him through it. And Jack's just like, do it. And Eliza schools him saying, you don't know how important this is. It's got to be perfect. It's going to be read by all the savants. And Leibniz explains that the problem is he knew Newton invented this stuff like years before he did, but never published it. And so he feels he doesn't want to be a plagiarist. He doesn't want and this is, of course, the root of the calculus scandal is that Leibniz eventually started publishing his findings on these things. And Newton says, I had this all figured out long ago and you just stole it from me. It's not true, but um, that's the nature of the. That's the heart of the calculus dispute, right? Um, and he finally, they, they kind of have Jack being the one who just takes it and throws it into the post office, you know, push, forces the issue. Jack never thinking about, thinking through things very carefully. So um, what else do we have here? Uh, their, their long trip through Saxony to these silver mines, it takes quite a while. And we see Leibniz and... Eliza talk about a lot of things. She talks about his philosophy. He talks about his logic mill. He eventually teaches her cryptography, which is going to be a major plot in at least the third volume of the book, or the third book of the sorry, the third book of the series. The next one we're going to look at, Odalisk, where we see her using cryptography uh, in various ways. Um, she learned basic, the basics of it from from Leibniz. How to use the hexagrams of the I Ching to code messages and then use binary to create numbers that you translate into letters and all these things so she uh she's learning all this from them uh from from them at the same time while jack's just sort of bored and she's not interested in his stories anymore and we start to see them begin to become more and more distant from uh, from each other and as i said it's really sad if you like the eliza jack um relationship now, the f next ep we don't get as many epigraphs in, in book two of the series. We get a few, but we don't get as many. But one comes up on page 437. It's from Milton, Paradise Lost, and it goes like this. Mammon led them on. Mammon, the least erected spirit that fool, flew, fell, sorry, from heaven, forever in heaven, his looks and thoughts were always downward bent, admiring more the riches of heaven's pavement trodden gold than aught divine or holy else enjoyed in vision beautific by him first. Men also by a suggestion taught ransacked the center with his imperious hands, rifled the bowels of the other earth for treasures better hid. Mammon, of course, is one of the fallen angels who with Satan, with Lucifer, goes down to earth. He's a major character in Paradise Lost. And of course, he's, the, he's kind of the demon of wealth and money, right? We still use that term, right? Mammon, someone who worships Mammon, someone who worships... The pursuit of wealth rather than some other social good, I guess. Which, of course, is what we're going to get into here in the story. Um, so all kinds of stuff about just the how destructive money is. It's destructive to Eliza and Jack's relationship. It corrupts them. Um, it's, it's connected to slavery, right? So for, listen to this. We've, we've already kind of established here by this point in the book that money is is kind of a liquid it's not real and it is except in that people have faith in it um, but here's something eliza says some parts of the story are too sad for me to tell about her own life history 
other is too tedious to hear. Suffice it to say, when I reached an age that horny more constructed as adulthood, I came in their minds to bear the same relationship to my mother as the div dividend does to the joint stock corporation. Uh, that is, a new piece of wealth created out of the normal functioning of the old. I was liquidated. She just becomes a commodity, right? Which, of course, slaves were. Um, they even talk about her price, how much she would cost compared to Turk. Um, so just money has this kind of effect of making everything a, a, something usable or exchangeable, right? It's not a surprise that the rise of capitalism coincides with the emergence of this very, very brutal form of Atlantic slavery, which was all about commodity production at the end of the day. All right. They get to the mines. And really, the mines section, they tour the mines. And there's a lot of fun here with, like, the fossils. And like sometimes the fossils scare Jack, who doesn't know what he's seen. And the doctor gets to show off his brilliance, saying, this is actually how fossils are made. I don't know if the science there was quite ready for him to basically get exactly right how fossils are, are, are produced over millions of years. Thousands of years in those days. They didn't have, know the age of the Earth yet. But even like the question, like there must have been a river here, he says, because there are shells, fossils of shells, and right, which of course is something we've actually seen before on this podcast. I think it's from Notes on the State of Virginia or something else that Jefferson wrote, where he noticed shells up on hills and things in Virginia. Uh, now they're using machines. That's the key feature here. They're using machines, or Leibniz is using these machines to increase the productivity of these mines. To try to make them just a little bit more profitable so silver can be mined per profitably in competition with Spanish silver, right? But of course, Spanish silver is lowering the value of silver over time. So it's kind of a doomed thing, and Leibniz seems to know this, but he's been sent here to try to do this. And so he does use machines. Now, Eliza makes the point, like, do the work, will the workers be mad about this? Maybe they'll try to sabotage your machines if you're taking their jobs away. A great kind of foreshadowing of the Luddites. Um, and you know, the resistance of, of people to, to, to labor. Now, Eliza, had, apparently Eliza hadn't been doing her chakra massaging, you know, finding Jack's G-spot lately because Jack's kind of frustrated about this. And he sort of blames it on her menstruation or she says something like, it's just like my time of, my time of the month. So Jack says, I'm going to go into town. And he goes into town ostensibly to find an apothecary to find something for her, you know, to make her feel better during her period. Really, he just needs to get away. He needs to be around town. He needs to, uh, that's, that's the part of life that's interested to him. That's what, it, that's what vagabonds do, right? They go to a city, they figure out how it works. They figure out how to make money and they figure out how to survive in this place. And that's what he ends up trying to do. So, um, he eventually goes into an apothecary shop, which isn't an apothecary shop, but it's full of like weird stuff. It's actually an alchemist shop, as we'll see. Um, all this wonderful stuff. Uh, you've ever seen like uh, pictures? You can search these like apothecary shops, 18th century or something. You can see what they look like. People would collect all this weird stuff from all over the world, and they would try to try out his medicines, like you know, of course, rhino horn stuff like that. Uh, you know, alligator eyelids. And, they had all these like stuffed animals from all over the world, almost like little museums, wild, wild stuff. Um, and I think Stevenson does a decent job trying to describe a place like this. Now, it turns out that this shop is, is Enoch Roots, our good friend Enoch Root, who's friends with 
um, Leibniz, of course, and connected with them. And he's running through our story at the right points. He'll be a major player in book two, volume two, I mean, of this series. Um, but still now he's just this kind of flying Dutchman character who shows up once in a while. And we find out also Jack's going mad because Enoch Root knows all about Jack because Jack's been mumbling to himself and telling stories. Uh, maybe he's podcasting. But anyways, he does, he's not aware he's doing it. And Enoch Root kind of says, oh, I know you're English. I know all about you. And finally, he says, like, the solution to Eliza's problem is probably just more red meat. She just needs iron. So just go to a butcher shop. You don't need to go to an apothecary. So they, they, they briefly disconnect. Then we get this wonderful section uh, set on Walpurgis Night. Uh, 1684 April 30th 1684 is the date and he basically gets lost in the woods um, trying to get back to town and trying to get back to the mines he, he's able to get to the town but he can't get back to the mines he ends up lost in the woods and this is a long section I want to say it's yeah I guess it's like 15 pages of the book so pretty pretty a pretty long section here where Jack is is first just wandering the woods on Walpurgis Night. Now, if you follow my H.P. Lovecraft podcast, you know about Walpurgis Night, something Lovecraft was really into. It's basically a, it's a, it's a folk holiday in Central Europe, right? And it's tied with the witches' sabbaths and things. And it is here too. So this is a witches. It's it's a, a scene of witches. It's wonderful. So he he starts up a fire in the woods after getting lost in the woods, and then a bunch of Women show up from different ages, and it turns out they're a, they're a hexen. They're they're actually a coven of witches, and they start l making a stew. They basically commandeer his fire, and with this big pot, and start making a stew. And Jack's super hungry because he's been out in the woods, not having anything to eat. So he thinks it's like they're cooking a stew, but they're now like meat and vegetables. It's just like weird mushrooms and stuff, uh, and herbs. And he's like, okay, I'll eat it. He thinks it's just a, like a weird stew. Uh, that the peasants make. He's a vagabond, right? They survive um, by whatever means necessary. He drinks this, and he actually takes a second dose, and they look at him kind of cross-eyed about that. Like, why would you take a second dose? But he takes it anyways. They give it to him. And he's like, oh, I got something to eat. I'll be fine. But it turns out it, he's hallucinating, right? It's a drug that they created for the coven before they have their, like, witch's Sabbath. And they're literally, they have an orgy here. Um... Now, of course, we're reminded of like the Lovecraft question of whether the witch cults were a real thing or not, right? And I, I kind of err on the side of like things like this probably happened um, as, as at least a subculture. It wasn't just the um, witches weren't entirely the fantasies of the of the ruling class and the religious Puritans and types. It was something coming out of real vernacular traditions. At least I want to believe that. But Stevenson is having the witches being real here. But it's also, we see the violence against witches. Because before any of this happened, I forgot to mention, I think we do see a witch being burned alive. And Jack witnesses it. For him, it's now it's not a huge deal because he's seen plenty of executions. But, you know, as a reader, we're supposed to be somewhat shocked by this. But they eventually, because of this potion, he starts to lose his mind. He, he actually partakes in the witch's coven in a way. At least as an observer, where he sees this... He sees them having sex. He sees the ceremonial figures as Satan. 
He actually sees different demons. He, he thinks they're different Satans, but I think it must be Satan and different demons. People dressed up. It's not the only masquerade we're going to get in this book, though. We're going to get... This is criminal. This masquerade, this play acting, this party, this orgy is criminal. Right? In fact, they're scared. They eventually are scared of Jack when they find his weapon. Because he's kind of hidden his sword in his in his crutch. And he's kind of way of faking. He's, a, he's injured, but it's actually the crux of his weapon and all that. He's got that figured out. But... They, someone sees his sword or his clothing or something and says, oh, you're a watcher, like you're a watcher, you're the guards, you're going to come and kill us, right? You're worth the state. So the, we've seen a witch be executed. This is criminal stuff. You can't do this. But they do it nonetheless. But 100 pages later, as we'll see in the next episode, the ruling class of France can do just as debased stuff, right? Dressing up as satyrs and, of course, having all kinds of their weird sex. That's... They're always doing, right? With all their mistresses or whatever. Dressing up in just enough offensive things. Here's someone's dressed up as Satan. Black figure, horned and bearded. Well, 100 pages later, someone's going to be dressed up as a satyr. But it's going to be a rich person's party, right? And of course, they're not criminal for doing that. I think that's conscience on Stevenson's point. But I I claim, I, I think this connection, I think, is this contrast is, is, is there on purpose. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just a coincidence. But the fact that we have two masquerades in the same volume, is, I think not. I don't think it is a coincidence. So eventually, they, he has to run away from the witches. They're trying to chase him down and kill him because they think he's basically a spy for the police and that, he, that he's going to come back with, you know, fucking soldiers and, and wipe them out and kill them all. So they're chasing him through. Eventually, he, he finds a building that turns out to be the mine entrance. The way we know this is there's like a picture of St. Barbara, but it's been Protestantized. So they got a picture of Martin Luther. And then they sort of decatholicize uh, St. Barbara, who's the patron saint of, of like miners. But anyways, this is like the mine entrance. And he eventually is able to go down. And he, now he's in the bowels of the earth. And he's digging around there, and it's kind of a funny scene where he eventually goes into this water, which is a bunch of phosphorus, like a phosphorus runoff in the mine. Comes out, he sees a bunch of people in a weird dress, and he thinks they're they're also weird witches or something. And he sees Eliza, and he jumps out to save Eliza, you know, as a hero, thinking she's under some kind of danger. Now, it turns out these people are just dressed in the modern French staff fashions, and that's a really great moment here where... Jack's been out of Paris so long, he hasn't noticed kind of the over-the-top clothing we've already seen, talked about, in described in England. And, of course, if you've seen those portraits of Louis Fourteenth, you know what I'm talking about here. And it kind of freaks him out. He thinks that these are, like, also weird cultists going to do something to Eliza. And he kind of valiantly tries to save the day, but he ends up just looking like a fool. And there is Enoch Root and Leibniz and Eliza, and they're trying to do this shilling thing where they're trying to sell Cookson in the mine, and the plan is to have Eliza pretend she's interested, and then, you know, basically shill for Leibniz to sell. But it, it all blows up in their face, and eventually Leibniz is happy because it means he doesn't have to deal with these Cookson and the silver mine too much anymore. He can get back to something that matters. But... A nice end to this scene, but this whole section is 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 gold. It's it's really wonderful, um, and because I like witches, um, I don't know if we needed a chase scene, you know, maybe, um, but it kind of works to get Jack back in the mind and have a pretty humorous 
re-entrance of, of, of Jack. All right, so then we move on to the summer of 1684 to uh, Amsterdam. Our epigraph is from Daniel Defoe, The Plan of, for the English Commerce, basically talking about how trade is like religion. Very few people understand it. It's got its own rules. We start out with the flashback of how they traveled through the Holy Roman Empire, you know, and of course the Holy Roman Empire, Germany, is hundreds and hundreds of different states, big and small, each with their own religious politics, each with their own border guards and tariffs and all these kinds of things. So they have to sneak these commodities through all these different um, gates, all these different toll booths. They have to, uh, you know, make sure it's the right religion. They can't be too openly Protestant or Catholic in the wrong place. They're not really religious, so that's easy, but they have to be aware of these things. And they find out it, it's easier to travel with Eliza dressed as a man, but at the, at, the, at the borders, it's better she's a woman because then they'll be distracted by how hot she is. Um, but they figure the way through, right? Um, and we also have this growing feeling that Louis XIV is a force in this world, right? Um, he's been kind of distant. The Turks were a bigger threat, maybe, but in this part of the world, Louis the Fourteenth and his ambitions, and in in Germany, eventually he wants to control all the land up to the Rhine, of course, and Amsterdam, and Spain, right? And he fights a long series of wars to achieve this. Um, but you know they have to get through all these things, um, and when they get to Amsterdam, it's just like this: they see the steady supply of commodities coming in and out, and there's a you know, Eliza kind of comments on this scene. You know, Amsterdam really is just this. It doesn't produce anything, but it's this middleman for commerce. And what we're seeing here in the roads is just a small fraction of what you'll see if you were to go to the docks. And eventually they do go to the docks and it's just wall-to-wall ships. Um, right? All the commerce of all the world being tied in some ways to the Netherlands. Right? And this is, is important for politics because with money comes power. Right. For the control of the money supply, control of the commodities mean you can fight a war. Remember, the Third Anglo-Dutch War, at least in Stevenson's mind, as presented here, was lost because the English just ran out of money. The English and the French couldn't pay, couldn't ran out of money. And when the when the Dutch flooded the lands, they just couldn't sustain an army long enough to complete the campaign. It was not that they had more didn't have more troops. They probably could have just overwhelmed them, but they didn't have the money to do it. And that's probably still true, right? You know, your ability to wage wars, at least great power type conflicts, is dependent on on how much money you have. Now, there's some flashback here about um, why they're going to Amsterdam. So it all comes down to a conversation Eliza and Leibniz have about the mines. And I've sort of already talked about this, I think, in the previous episode. But ultimately, Eliza comes to, comes to the opinion that what matters is not silver. If you don't buy a silver mine, because you might be, even with Leibniz's machines, you might be able to increase productivity a little bit. But that's not where, that's still going to be like, you're not going to make enough money for it to really matter. Instead, you got to control the commodity that silver mining depends on, and that's quicksilver, right? Because not only are you not bound to one mine, you can sell it to any mine, right? Get higher profits. And they actually work out the numbers. Like if we have Quicksilver, we can get this much profit versus just having the profit from a mine. So she says, let's go to Amsterdam and buy Quicksilver. And I think 
Jack says something like, with whose money? We don't have enough money. And she says, we'll just use someone else's money, which is a very Eliza moment, right? But also very modern, very modern capitalist um, a solution to the problem of, of not having money, right? Plenty of people got wealthy without having any money in the first place, right? They just knew the right people, had that idea, and were able to extract value and then deal with the debt later on or just keep kicking it down the road. Again, that's what Eliza knows. Eliza knows capitalism is a game. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a trick. It's about a trick of extracting value where you can. For Jack, it may be the same thing, but it, he's, he thinks in such petty terms, right? Like how to get the most immediate money for the plumes. He doesn't think long term at all. Eliza eventually doesn't even need the plumes. It's just it's great. It's like such a MacGuffin for much of the story, or these ostrich plumes. And eventually Jack kind of fucks it up where he gives it to some Armenians to sell on his behalf and he's never going to see that money. Probably never see it. That's what Eliza thinks. But by that point, Eliza doesn't care about that money anymore. Right? She's made plenty more than she'd ever make from the ostrich plumes just through interpersonal relations and sweet talking to the right people and, and knowing, a you know, having the right news. All right. I'm kind of dwelling too much on this aspect of the story. Another great epigraph on page seven four seven four about the chain of production. A quote from Leviathan. Uh, well, Hobbes here writes, From desire ariseth the thought of some means we have seen produce the like of which we aim at. And from the thought of that, the thought of means to that means. And so continually till we come to some beginning within our own power. Um, about the chain of production, I, I think, at least in this context. I guess if I have a criticism of Eliza's character, it's somehow she's so anti-slavery and she doesn't see slavery as integral to the system she seems to be championing. Like if you take her as just someone trying to profit short term to, to move up in society, right, using the system, she never really has a moral judgment on it, even when she knows it's like all connected to war. Um, at least I don't remember. Maybe I'll keep my eye out for that in the future volumes, but you don't see it here. Even when she becomes a victim of those people in power, um, her prominence in Amsterdam as a merchant leads her into politics, which leads her into essentially a type of political slavery. But she doesn't really ever come off critical of commerce, uh, of early of capitalism. She seems to almost be his champion, um, even though she must know it's it's tied to the thing that enslaved her. Or believe that somehow you can purify this capitalist system by getting rid of slavery. It seems kind of naive to me. But anyways, um, let's talk a little bit about the Leibniz scheme, the Leibniz cryptography stuff here. And eventually Eliza, they live in Amsterdam for a while, for it's like months and months. And basically uh, Jack gets more and more bored with his existence there. And Eliza's getting more and more connected to commerce. She's uh, getting the news. She's connecting to different people. You know, she's buying this or that. It's not all detailed here. We'll get a little bit of detail in her business later on. It doesn't really matter. It's, she's kind of becoming rich and well-known in Amsterdam, which is a good place to become well-known because well that's where a lot of people from all the world are uh, coming. There's French there. There's English people there. There's businessmen from all over in Amsterdam. 
Uh, unfortunately, it's also going to be a center of political intrigue for her anyways. But all this just makes Jack really, really jealous and more and more alienated from Eliza. And part of it, of course, is that Jack wants to, as he sees Eliza succeeding in this, he wants to prove that he can still be an asset to her, right? She relied on him for many months. And that was kind of the basis of their relationship. And she's becoming more independent. So he's a bit of... He's a bit of an asshole, actually, about this. He's, you know, you kind of feel sorry for him a little bit, but at the same time, he is being kind of trying to be the good, the nice man, right? Not the nice guy towards towards Eliza. And when she becomes good at commerce, he wants to prove that he's even better. As we'll see in the next episode, you know, when he finds out he's going to be involved in a slave trading expedition, and Eliza says, you can't do that. And and Jack says, well, how else am I going to prove myself that I can do what you can do? And she's like, "You don't. I'm not asking you to. Just chill with me. I'll find your shocker every night. But he doesn't, you know, that's not good enough for him, right? Because he can't handle this woman basically being better at him than this. So that, that's kind of another kind of, it's, it's a part of Jack's character that, really comes off kind of he comes off kind of horrible to be honest um and she can never get over he can never get over her either that's another thing as we'll see later on in the story but he just says okay i i'll be back but liza doesn't believe it but he says i'll be back i'm just going to go to paris i'm going to sell turk sell the plumes she's like that's not a bad idea because you'll get a higher price in paris you know, and he's like, I'll be back. But he wants, he needs to be able to do something. He needs to fulfill his life as a, as a vagabond. So back to vagabonding for, for poor Jack. So then we, we follow Jack as he goes to Paris. So, um, basically he's kind of rethinking life a little bit. He's thinking maybe I got to start finally finding some being for his kids. He thinks he's going to probably die soon. He starts to go increasingly mad throughout these chapters too. The, the pox starts to get into his head increasingly deep more more deeply he starts not knowing where he is all the time and starts hallucinating not because of a witch's brew this time but because actually he's going mad um but anyways he finally gets out into france and he meets this guy arlong arlong i think monsieur arlong yeah uh and he's a huguenot and he's a french huguenot and they have a small conversation together and he kind of guides them uh guides him south and eventually he gets into Paris. And there's some wonderful Paris stuff here. Just the descriptions of Paris are beautiful. Uh, the, the feeling of, of it being a labor-intensive city uh, with lots of excess labor. The propaganda of it all. The, you know, each city here is described as very different, right? One, you know, the one in, I guess, Amsterdam is based on commerce and consumption. And Paris is, is based on labor it's like just the physical numbers of people, um, but also it's much more of a state. You feel the state. You see p- paintings and statues of Louis the Fourteenth riding in a battle everywhere. It's it's you're, you know you're in a very very different type of city. Um, now his first job is kind of something he he picked up. I think it must have been in Amsterdam where he delivered a message, you know, and then you pay off the guy who gives you the message. That actually becomes his job in Paris for a while. But he runs into the old friend Saint uh, Saint George, uh, Saint George. I, I guess it's got to be in French. Um, sorry, I'm not sure how it's pronounced exactly. But he meets him, and 
you know, he helps him find a basically moves in with helps him move in with some Armenians who are posing as Turks selling coffee. So, um, you know, we've seen coffee in in like these London coffee shops, but you know, here it's like Ar- Turks. Armenians dressed up as Turks selling Turkish coffee, which has been plundered from the siege of Vienna and ended up in Paris. Um, I think I think even Jack at one point says, "There's coffee in England," and the guy says, "No, no, no, like it's not fashionable if it's in England. It's just a curiosity. It's fashionable if they drink it here in Paris and drink it in our way." But anyways, there there's so the commerce is very different here too. It's based much more on honor and negotiation and and stuff like that like the sellers aren't supposed to pretend they want money it's very different in england as we've already seen in this book it's very different of course in amsterdam as well everything is much more based on even though if you do have your desires and you want to make a profit you can't pretend to have that so the haggling is much more labor intensive too i think stevenson did a really good job of defining these different cities whether it's accurate historically drawn from life I don't know, but it works so well um, in world building here. So uh, more on the city of Paris. He ends up just sort of hanging around Paris. Um, Yeah, a lot of propaganda, a lot of labor intensive things. But we also, he knows he's going increasingly insane. We do learn a few things during this wintering in Paris with these Armenians. One is he eventually gives the plumes to the Armenians to sell off. And he's going to get the money, and that's what he's going to be. This is going to be his estate to his children because he thinks he's not going to live for much longer. Um, now, you know, I guess we'll have to see whether he gets any money for the plumes or not, but um, it is what it is. We've learned, a, we also learn a lot through just rumors and gossip and things with these Armenians about the silver inflation that's being caused by the importing of Spanish silver into the. Or Spanish American silver into the into Europe, um, and this is some concern whether this you know how this will affect the price of the ostrich plumes and all that, and whether you should wait or whatever. Um, another thing we learn is that Jack has become sort of a legend. This is something actually that I think Enoch Root mentioned one point before is that like the stories of Jack, particularly the Plague House story, go back to the last episode for that, or uh, and the. The feeding of the vagabonds with the fish harvest, the feeding of the thousand vagabonds uh, through he threw a bomb into the lake, killing all the fish. Uh, and other stories of Jack have already been kind of written down, passed around word for by word of mouth, sort of become legend, then been written down by novelists and sold in popular picaresque novels. It's great stuff, really. You know, it's a bit over the top that our character becomes the a folk culture icon but of course as i said that happened to jack shepherd the character that this is somewhat based off of uh in london he becomes folk hero people wrote novels about him right it's a way for the lower classes to live vicariously through these heroic figures from their own class background not just this elite not just the d'artagnans and those types so jack's become a legend in french called le Murder- murderer uh, or just half-cock Jack. It becomes much more his name, the half-cock Jack, or the king of the vagabonds. He becomes kind of a, leg- a legend in in France among the vagabonds, right? And he's got an easy way to identify himself, right? Because he's got half a dick. We also learn that the king dies, uh, the king of England, I mean, 
Charles the Second dies. And we'll get all this in flashback at the beginning of Volume 3 of the book. So, yeah, but at this point, Volume 3 and Volume 2 start to overlap a little bit, um, at least in that. This is when, uh, I guess, Daniel Waterhouse sort of reappears in the story, but not until Volume 3. All right. Now the important stuff. The Jack stuff is fun, and there's some nice background stuff that is mentioned. But really, the important thing here is, is poor Eliza. Eliza, she thinks she's on top of her game. She's in The Hague, February 8, 1685, after this winter. She's made money. She's made connections. But she's going to be trapped pretty soon. So we have a series of just encounters she has in, the, in February of, of 85 with different high-ranking political figures. And kind of a common setting here is her skating around on the rivers of Amsterdam in The Hague on like the canals and things. They freeze over and people skate on them. And she's from Tagum, so she knows how to skate. She was basically born with skates in Tagum. But she's able to interact in a social way with very, very high-ranking people, like, like crazy high. I mean, for someone who was a slave a year earlier, you know, or less than a little bit more than a year earlier, it's pretty crazy how fast she's moved up, right? And she's kind of in awe of these people, too. And she wants to use them. Her idea is, I can use these powerful people to get news about war and peace and then use that to make money. And she's got very clear plans here, like short-selling uh, VOC stock. Um, short-selling VOC stock is one plot she has. The other is to buy lead. You know, a guy with all this lead, because it's been pe relatively peaceful, this guy has got warehouses full of lead and the price is going down. And like, we can buy this cheap off of him now because he wants to unload it. And then we can sell it for a higher price if war is going to break out, which she figures out will happen because she meets the Duke of Monmouth, who's going to start his rebellion to seize the throne of England. All this stuff. She's, she's, she thinks she's thinking ahead of everyone. And it turns out this just, you know, she's just getting trapped by these people she's in, interacting with, right? Like each, t each time she thinks she's getting the one up on them, they're chaining a shackle to her. Poor Eliza. But, you know, she, she yeah, does come off as smart, but she's not like superhumanly smart. She's not smart enough to know what's happening to her here. So the first person we meet here is DeVoe. DeVoe's the French ambassador in Amsterdam. He's a, he's a fictional character, I think. No, he's real. Sorry. He's a real one. Comte DeVoe, French ambassador to Dutch Republic, later advisor to James II during his campaign in Ireland. Okay, so he's a real person. So most of the, so all these people she meets are pretty much are real. Uh, well, Bolstrud is not. He's someone we met in the first volume, in Quicksilver, uh, from a Puritan family, but a merchant family. She meets the Duke of Monmouth, and eventually she meets William of Orange. Other people, too. Um, but through this, we get a lot of news. Like, this is after the death of Charles II, so there's a lot of... It's like a diplomatically tense time. Will James II basically become an, uh, an extension of France? And what will that mean for the Netherlands? How can the Netherlands maintain their independence if there's another war like the last one? All that. They remember the, the Third Anglo-Dutch War, right? But Eliza's got her ears up and she's thinking, oh, what does this mean for the price of gunpowder or the saltpeter or the price of this or that? And, and that's what's going on, right? 
but she's really impressing some of these people at the same time, like DeVoe. But at the same time, they, they, she's hot, right? And she's impressive to them. But these aren't people who like are desperate to ha- to have her physically. You know, that's it's about her as an asset. That's ultimately what they want for her. So, uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff in this chapter. So it's, it's a huge section again, but so much good stuff. For instance, uh, we, we, we learned how commerce is sort of degraded by the French aristocracy. Um, quote, Mademoiselle in my circles, anyone who transacts business of any sort on any level is a whore. Among French nobility, distinctions are recognized between the finest commercants of Amsterdam and common prostitutes. Is that why Louis hates the Dutch, though? Oh, no, mademoiselle. Unlike those dour Catholics, we love whores. Versailles is form with them. No, we have any number of intelligent reasons to hate the Dutch. Great, great moments here in the, in the, in the writing of the, some of the dialogue. Um, you know, the mix between diplomatic, formal talk, and, and, and straight-up honest, honesty. I, I think he's got a lot of fun with how he puts some, how he writes these characters. Um, anyways, eventually they meet Mary, or she sees Mary. She had earlier seen Sophia, so this is like the second royalty figure she's seen in her life. Um, I don't think she's the Duke of Orange, because Mary's hanging out with Monmouth, uh, the Duke of Monmouth. And, you know, D- Duke of Monmouth is the bastard son of Charles II. Charles II had no kids, no, no legitimate kids, but he had all these bastards, the eldest of which is this Duke of Monmouth, the war hero from the Third Anglo-Dutch War. And so Mary's married a... Uh, Mary, who's the daughter of James II, has gone ahead and married uh, William of Orange. So Monmouth is hanging out with Mary, though, which is kind of suspicious because he's kind of a claimant for the English throne connected to a this person who will inherit the Stuart line eventually, right? Mary. Um, but anyways, he's... The Duke of Monmouth wants the throne, right? He wants. He eventually does lead a rebellion, and we'll get all the details of that rebellion in the next book. Odalisk, through none other than Bob Shafto's point of view, that's great stuff. Uh, great connections and and how he develops these characters. You don't think are going to be important, but they become important. Um. So, anyways, the Duke of Monmouth shows up, meets Eliza, and Eliza gets all horny for him because he's presented he's, he's super hot too um and there's this hints about like a, a like an anglo-dutch alliance the shifting alliances like an anti anti-louis the 14th alliance but can you do that if you have you know james second on the throne a catholic someone who's maybe pro-french all of that is in the backdrop but it's all tied to the markets right what is this going to mean for the markets what's it going to mean for the futures markets what's it going to mean if we try this short sell you know, uh, VOC stock or whatever. So I don't know, not much more. To, I mean, there's a lot to say here, but it's it's really all about Eliza trapping herself in these relationships. She even sleeps with, uh, well, I, guess, I guess she doesn't actually have sex with the Duke of Moma. She just gives him the chakra treatment too. Um, but her Virginia doesn't stay for long. Anyways, that's it. I think I'm going to stop here.
Uh, we're actually almost done with uh, King of the Vagabonds, but uh, there's enough to kind of fill out the final, another episode. So, yeah, that's going to be it for now. Um, important sections. I think this it's in this middle part of the book. It really switches from being about Vagabonds and really being about commerce and politics. And politics is what's going to dom dominate the final chapters of this book although we will get some nice action scenes and some some high drama too so i guess that's it that's going to be it for now uh thanks for listening i will see you next time as i finish up my thoughts on king of the vagabonds Bag of blob on my back, my face is bruised and toes. Well, I'm so kicking that is gone.